0: Experts. Welcome back, citizens of the Democratic Republic of Sports, to another episode of the People's Game Summer Edition, because as you'll find out, especially in today's episode, sport never stops, it's just the equipment that changes. Today we'll be exploring the somewhat unlit paths of World Championship Chess, the mobile versions of Land Quidditch, and a world tour of the United States of Sports. We'll also head into the night for a throwback version of Book Club discussing Anna Crane's award-winning, ever-relevant book, somewhat unfortunately, Night Games, and its place in the current sports landscape. And joining me to discuss and debate all that and more are two of the best sports and culture commentators this side of the Arrow River. Firstly, Casey Simons, who has returned from a USA academic tour as a PhD candidate in gender, sport and fandom, and is also the current women's football editor at the Footy Almanac. And joining us will be Jack Bannister, the newly minted cadet, Journalists for The Citizen, a publication for the Centre of Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, who are also our lovely hosts for today. Welcome, everyone, for another episode. How good.
1: Hey, Gordon. Hey, Jack.
0: Hey, guys. Did
1: you guys miss me while I was away? Yes.
0: I didn't miss you
1: guys that much. I was a bit busy.
2: I'm going to quickly take a stop at the W League Derby, which we had the pleasure of attending. It was your first football, round ball, soccer experience, I believe, Casey.
1: It was my first ever soccer game.
2: Soccer? (laughs) Soccer. Soccer. Soccer.
1: (laughs) Yes, um, I've got to learn to use the word football in a soccer context because I know people get mad at me when I say soccer. But, yeah, I feel like we had um, the reverse situation of when I took you to your first basketball game, Jack. I was the novice and I was the annoying fan asking you all the rules, like, what is offside?
2: And I felt like I'm very, I've become, and I'm sure listeners will be great, gladly gladly hearing this, but I've become more conscious of mansplaining at sporting events, like a lot more conscious. (laughs) And so you're like, can you explain offside to me? And I'm like, Google it, please. Google it, Google it, (laughs) it. just Google it. Um, I think we got there in
1: the end. I think we did, but... I still get confused when I thought I had it set up and I knew where the players were and I knew where the line was. And I asked you, for examples, like if that player received the ball now, they would be offside. You would say things like, oh, but I don't know if they were onside. So I was like, well, now I just don't know. So I think I need to go to a few more games. need to... It's
2: also the fact that to judge offside correctly, you have to see at what moment the ball is passed and where the player was positioned at the moment that it was passed, which is why it's so hard to call. It's so hard to follow. Um, So that's why, like... But to be honest, it's probably one argument in favour of VAR when you just look at how hard offside is to referee with the naked eye. Hmm. I can't. Can you? See, think I, just, a hard, I disagree. Do you, with you not, not think that's
0: I hard? completely disagree. Well, I don't know what's going they've on. Been, with your being, they've been adjudicating offside since the invention of association football and doing it just fine. They have two linesmen whose job, only job really, is to look at is the defender behind the furthest attacker at the moment when the ball is kicked to them. That's the rule. Mm. And they've been doing it. They've been doing it for a hundred years plus. That's a
2: more concise explanation than what Casey got on Friday night.
1: Maybe I need to go to the soccer with Gordon. Well, not Jack.
2: he's probably better better at explaining <laughs> things than me, because I just like I think oh no, this is great and it's like you don't get it. I'm like why do you not get this? Just understand it, Casey.
1: Sorry. Um.
2: <laughs> anyway, the game itself um was my first W league game um. One of the talking points that we'll get to in a minute was just the fact that this was played at Amy Park. So it was played to a relatively empty stadium, despite the fact that it was high stakes. Questions for you, Casey. Number one, as a spectator experience and as a quality of sport experience, how good was this? And secondly, would we have enjoyed this more if it was played at Lakeside?
1: First question, I really enjoyed it. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it because I've been... um, very anti-soccer for a long time because I've been a bit of an Aussie rules snob. It's only been the last couple of years where I've started to pay a little bit more attention to it as um, the women's games got a lot stronger and I'm very pro-women doing things. So that's kind of the reason why I wanted to get more involved with it and I want to get really really like as an ardent soccer fan and leading up to the world cup next year, because I actually want to get involved in supporting a world cup and knowing what's going on because I've ignored every men's soccer world cup in my lifetime. I just don't care. I've got no interest. Um, and I guess probably more for my academic background is I actually attend a lot of uh, football conferences around the world, uh, football meaning soccer, and I'm usually the only one there who goes, I don't care about soccer, sorry all you other academics that I don't care about your life work. So I need to uh, change that a little bit because there is a lot of crossover from a cultural perspective. So I went there with really low expectations um, and I thought I wouldn't enjoy it for all of those reasons because I had such inherent biases against the game. But I actually really loved it. Um, And I think I was thinking about it like what we talked about on our last podcast in terms of watching sport live when we were talking about the basketball and you were saying at your first basketball game that you actually enjoyed the live experience a lot more. And I think that really helped me at the game, watching it live, because I've watched a lot of soccer on TV from people trying to sell me the game, the men's game mostly, and I just don't get it. I'm bored. The commentary for me is really boring because I don't understand the strategy of it. But watching it live and watching what those women were doing on the field and how athletic they were and where they were positioning themselves and how hard they were working was really interesting to me. So I really did have a good time. So thanks for taking me.
2: An absolute pleasure.
1: (laughs) Second question. Um, Yeah, the empty sports stadium is a really interesting one, especially with women's sports, because I've been to a lot of uh, women's sports where the stadium is predominantly empty most of the time. And it's hard because yes, it does take away a little bit from the atmosphere, but also, I don't think I would have enjoyed it more if it was at a smaller stadium or a more boutique regional stadium, just to feel the weight of more people. I still really get a buzz out of watching women on elite surfaces. So, I mean, I'd love to see more people there in the future, um, especially at WE Games. If you're a student, it's $5 a ticket to go. So get down there. You don't have a reason not to go if you're a student. That's so cheap. Um but yeah, I don't know what the answer is for that because I don't want to see them moved to somewhere else. Um I just hope that over time it gets a bit more appealing to mm. the average punter to get along and check it out. But I d I don't think it took away from my match day experience that it was quite empty.
2: Yeah, and from a I mean, from a selfish point of view, we had cracking seats. Like we were on the halfway yeah, line, like, really f- good seats. like four or five like high enough that you could see the whole field, not on the fence, like great seats. Mm. Um I think the quality of the W, w League compared to just other leagues around the world is so much higher than the men's league. So I just, I think that that is such a draw card for me because I know that I'm going to watch players that are World Cup players and they're not just World Cup players in a minnow. They These are like serious footballers. They're serious imports that are capped for England and so on and so forth. And most of the W League teams have a handful of Matildas and they have girls that are playing in the Women's League in America. Um, and I don't think it matters to, it doesn't matter to me and it shouldn't matter to me that, it's the game where the the standard of the women's game is closest to the men's game, but I think for other people that is something that is still attractive about it because when you watch the skills, the skills are superb, and they're not the tu- like first touch. I don't think it's really any different to what you'd expect on display if you were watching the soccer roos run around.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to hear that for someone who's not paid attention to the men's paid attention to the men's soccer game. So it's good to know. That the standard is quite
3: comparable. Mm. Mm.
2: It's it's the sort of it stands out. If you were if you were someone that uses that as a reason to not go to a women's sport, I don't think that option is available to you with W League. And I'm not saying you should you should never use that as your excuse. It's yes. un, it's an unfair comparison for so many reasons that you understand. Correct. But if you're trying to use that excuse with the W League as your reason not to go, I think you're joking. Mm. Like I just it, I don't see it. Yeah. It's to me it was. Very, very similar to watching a men's game. Huh.
3: Not yep. that that should be my barometer. Yeah. As
2: I've said Yeah, yeah, yeah. Times. No, yep. you're
1: just talking for someone who probably has a lot of ingrained biases, who's just trying to find an excuse. Not, not that. No, I'm not saying that's no, you. you I'm like, yes. you're yeah, trying yeah. to represent that type of person and who would just say that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And with the empty stadiums, that's a problem that just Australian football has at the moment. And that's an FFA problem because. Not only, like, comparisons are made across the board. So when you're going, do I pay, so it's $5 for the W League, which makes it, you know, there's nothing to lose there. It's, it's $5. bucks. Mm. let us just do it. But for A-League games, there's sometimes 30 to $40, especially for decent seats, probably going yeah. upwards of that. So then you start comparing, do I, do I spend $40 a month on Optus Sport to watch Premier League football, or do I spend $40 a game to go watch City, where City wouldn't even... Fair in the third to here of of English football, yeah, and so that's the problem that they have. And then the people that make those those lazy comparisons between men's sport and women's sport go, oh, well, yeah, the W League is comparable to the A League, but the A League's not that good, which is why they have this problem with numbers still because they because they haven't. I think they almost need it. Like W League and the FFA need to go down that need to go down this like a really aggressive path of separating themselves from like we're not part of. The roos, we're not part, of, like we're actually, the, we are the Matildas and that's enough. Especially because we have such a boom moment with women's sport. So we have our women's cricket team in the final of the T20i World Cup. We have our hockey, hockey roos are always at the top of their, their levels. And we've got the Matildas who will probably make the World Cup final again if, if all form guards are going to like stay true, stay true to form. So we've got our three most successful national teams are all women's teams. And even to use that that storyline which we've talked about a couple of times in previous episodes of Australians base themselves as as winners in the sporting field and defeating the odds of being such a small country against such huge countries. That's a storyline that women's sport in this nation could use as a subset of that story. So not only are we the biggest winners out of everyone, we've done it from the hardest conditions. We've done it without the privilege the male privilege, we've done it without the funding, we've done it. I sell a lot of the time, even with an AFLW example and an NRLW and build that out. But I feel like that needs to be the story that you tell is that like we are the we are the champ like we are the champions to use a <laughs> really cliche line, but like that's we and we're doing it better than the men. And get a bit like antagonistic and a bit competitive about it and say like until you guys step up yeah. We're 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 gonna be the cultural leaders of, of winning in this country.
1: I'd really love to see that narrative come through because I think more often than not at the moment you still see the narrative of those women should just be grateful that they're there. Mm. So Which is bollocks. It is bollocks. Bollocks! Um, so bollocks. But they're just taught from a young age to be really humble about their place. So I think until we see a new wave of younger women coming in who have been like, sort of really encouraged to to be like accepting of their place in the world of sport, we're probably not going to see that narrative change because these women are not going to come out and say, I've worked really hard, I've worked my ass off, I've done it all myself and I'm amazing. They're still going to say, oh, I'm so grateful that I'm here and I'm so lucky and I've you know been given all this opportunity by someone else, So, which really, really grates me when I hear that word grateful all the time and and they um, sort of owe their success to other people who have given them a chance. But, yeah, I, I think it's going to take a while for us to see that narrative change.
3: Each game of chess means there's one less variation left to be played.
2: So I'm going to launch you in and make you start telling me about this because I've been waiting to hear about this event, this illustrious sporting event, for many, many, many days. When I saw it on the agenda, I like my nipples went hard. It was super exciting. The well, World up. Chess Championships, what did you make of it?
0: Uh, the reason why this piqued my interest, though, is uh, the website 5th8 did a fantastic profile on the American challenger and number two in the world, Fabio Caruna. And that was by uh, Oliver Rudder, and you should all definitely check it out. Um, but it was basically. It's the first time uh, since Bobby Fischer that America's had a challenger at the number two position in, in world chess. And that's getting everyone a little bit more excited just because the, the raw numbers in the US mean that, yeah, things like Twitch where lot of these games are being uh, streamed. It's becoming a lot more popular to watch this. And this has got, it's gathered quite a lot of momentum for, yeah, for a, for a championship bout that hasn't actually had a victor yet. So some of the stuff around it's been quite interesting. And it's also kind of, disproven many myths around sport. So we've seen, like, cricket's having an issue with apparently pace of play, the same with baseball. We have these, like, old sports that were made in around the 1900s that people say are not fit for these times, yet World Championship Chess has been going since 1886. And now we've got people blowing up Twitch feeds, watching a a seven-and-a-half-hour, 85-move-each draw.
2: So can I ask you, does it have a problem with the pace of play? Chess? Yes.
0: Well... No, because they actually built in. They have their own built-in system. Like it depends what you call a problem with pace of play, because there are there've been positions in this tournament already where they've taken twenty-five minutes to make a move. But my,
2: like in in my household, someone would have already flipped the chessboard and gone to make another drink in that time. Hundred percent.
0: That's why you guys aren't grandmasters of chess. Well, no, plans. I think
2: there are other reasons I'm not a grandmaster of chess, Gordo.
1: What's like, if you were to say to someone who was not interested in chess, had no idea about competitive chess, what is it about this competition that you would say to them that they should start watching it for? What's the reason? Like, what's the hook into the game for a novice? The
0: number one reason why you'd watch or watch the highlights or read the recaps is just that human thriller drama element. So it is, it's, uh, it's two reasons and, and and the tactics and strategy if you're, if you're obviously a bit of a nerd, which you probably need to be to get into chess. In my, my take is, like, it's the analog version of esports. So if you go and watch, like, go to an event that is League of Legends or any type of uh, multiplayer capture-the-flag type game, that's, that's chess is the analog version of capture-the-flag. Interesting. You, the idea is to, is to take the king, the king is the flag, and the, all the tactics involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, because now we've invented computers that are already better than humans, it, we don't have this strive for perfection in the sport anymore. We actually... Chess is embraced for the imperfections that humans make. And so part of the other reason why the live streams are so captivating is because they they hook up these mega computers to it. And so they'll go, oh, Casey just made a move that's 96% correct. And now because of that, these these, these allow these other things that wouldn't have happened before. And so throughout this tournament, yeah, we've had eight matches already. There's been certain boards set up that have never been seen before in chess because if they were perfect, they wouldn't allow themselves to get into those positions, but instead they essentially get lost and then the excitement is them trying to work out how to get out of it.
2: Hmm. So... When you talk about, like, so we're talking grandmasters of chess. Mm. How many moves ahead are they thinking? Because I'm assuming they're a little bit more advanced than me going, if I start moving my horse in that direction, it'll arrive in that corner in three moves time, and my opponent will never see.
0: Well, a lot of it's quite, like, a lot of the elements of chess are quite formulaic, and the same with other sports. So, like, you know, basketball has its own defense, and... Uh, football has you know west coast offense and all those kind of things like chess has a, a plethora of already pre-set openings and closings and that kind of thing which usually happen and then it's when either they see an opportunity they change tack so they'll follow a certain opening and they'll go oh yep I can and now I can go for it and and go organically into it and that's where the excitement happens so you commentators will pick up and say oh this is this is the x opening blah 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 and then they'll go oh no he's changed and pivoted from that and that's kind of where the where that happens but the the difference of i suppose a a grand chess master is knowing when to when to pivot away from that yep.
2: but do you not find it too formulaic like is there not an agreed upon just as an example like this is the best way to structure pieces to stop an attack like surely there's a trigonometrically like verified best practice well, it'd
0: be, it'd be game, even, it game to have, nerd you out of big game theory but yeah, well, yeah have, I know what you mean yeah. yeah
2: but you know what I mean is there not like a best agreed upon thing that makes the variety in how people play null and void
0: well that's well yeah and the better you get the more draws you have so because we, these these two competitors are currently the highest rank one and two we've had in probably 60 years yep. and so that's why they're so they're, they're so close to being computers as you said before that they, they make very few mistakes so you do get that's the right move. That's the right yep. move. That's the right move. But already because of the time constraints. so in chess you have like only a set time to play certain moves. So the first thirty plays have to be within an hour. The next thirty has to be within 30 an minutes. hour. Well,
2: like, and so I have another question. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Does the other person <laughs> sit there and like watch for the entire hour? Because, yeah. Like, so you could do so, a lot with that hour.
0: No, but like, as in, so like the one of these games went for seven and a half hours.
3: Oh
2: my god!
0: And they're at the table.
2: I could meal prep for three weeks in that seven and a half hours.
0: <laughs> but also, when people say like like Love chess, that that's your example
1: <laughs> meal prep.
0: <laughs> I'm but a full time working class man, guys. Do
1: a lot of things to <laughs> meal prep. <laughs>
0: uh, but when yeah, when people kind of challenge the concept that, that chess isn't sport, one of the reasons why a mistake happened was because like they were so physically fatigued. He he took his hand off the piece early, and so he didn't complete his move. But he can't move the piece again because that's the end of a move. Is so that
1: like high drama?
0: Like, well, Yeah, it was.
1: That's exciting.
0: Yeah. And mm-hmm. and actually when you follow, because yeah, like you can follow like, the probability of a, of, a, of a move creating a win or a loss and he essentially just wiped out his whole advantage. He was essentially up by six goals and then conceded six goals in one move because he didn't fulfill it correctly. Hmm.
2: So I, I'm assuming chess players because of the fact that there's no uh, physiological advancement because of sports science. Eras are comparable in chess, like so. You could compare the best player from nineteen fifty to
0: the best player today. Uh, It's not sports science, but it's technology. So a lot of these guys will train with computers, so they all they all have supercomputers, yeah. Okay, and their ability to learn new formulas and new structures is just so much better because they can just spend hours with a computer playing against the computer. So it's 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 not it is kind of sports science. It's like going to the it's like having the best ball feeder for tennis players, so you could just set up and hit balls for twelve hours a day. Because they are almost chess robots, these two guys. Yeah, especially the Americans. So Fabio Karuna quit school in year eight to become a professional chess player. Year eight. And was a grandmaster by 19.
2: What? Well, it was a bit different to what I was doing at 19. Yeah. (laughs) Um do they not have like so? There are study drugs. Do they not have performance-enhancing drugs?
0: They do, they do get drug tested, so you, you won't you won't be allowed to take Ritalin so, or yeah. So
2: yeah, all of those things yeah. that have been used in other sports, yeah, are not yeah not allowed. Is there ways to doctor the system?
0: Well, I think there, there would be. Is there a drug yeah. that
2: will turn me into a chess grandmaster? Uh,
0: just time. Time. Time.
2: Time is the best drug. <laughs>
1: Good luck with your quest. Um, I have a Disneyland chess set, which I really enjoy playing with, just because they look really cute. But that's probably the only experience I have with chess.
2: But to speaking of like chess formats, there's speed chess as well, isn't
0: there? Yeah, and so all, speed chess is multiple player chess. So Carlson, the number one and the current world champion, uh, as a warm up to this event, played 12 games concurrently against 12 different opponents. And so like there's that's there's all these different formats and then there's you get there's human versus computer formats, there's speed formats, there's also then you go really kooky like chess boxing.
1: What is chess boxing?
0: Well literally it's chess and then a round of boxing. So it's like you you play two minutes of chess, two minutes boxing, two minutes of chess, two I minutes. I would boxing. watch
1: that. I'm going to watch that more than the seven hour batches. Yeah. I would pay money I'd to watch that. I back myself
2: in the boxing and him in the chess.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which oh. might be overestimating
2: mm. my ability to yeah, play. Nah, no, I
0: reckon I have even both.
2: Things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, we're, we're
2: definitely different weight
1: categories. Can we arrange this? I'm into this. I want you want to see watch Gordon and I and
2: beat the shit out of each other? Yeah. We do it every week on the microphone. <laughs> Is that not enough for you? No. Do we have to objectify ourselves more?
1: Yes, please. <laughs>
2: All right, well, nice little segue while we're talking of particularly weird sports. I have been going through a little bit of a a Quidditch phase, not in the sense that I've been rereading Harry Potter, but I actually went and watched some Quidditch out at Faulkner Park on Sunday. So the Australian Club Quidditch Championships, normally known as the QUAFL, are coming up on the Sunshine Coast in the first week of December. There are an array of Victorian teams going, among them the Wamping Willows, and the Melbourne Manticores. Um, I think my favourite Quidditch team name the world over is the Werewolves of London. Um, (laughs) Australia flopped out at the 2018 Quidditch World Cup but won in 2016. The national team is called the Drop Bears. Um, So this is a really weird one because it started as a, essentially a Comic-Con style Harry Potter event in a US college. So you would have... uh, actual very real broomsticks with bristles between the legs of the participants and they would be wearing robes and it was very much a spin-off Harry Potter nerds running around and playing. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting, I spoke to um, Nicola Goetzer, who's the president of the Victorian Quidditch Association, which 100% exists, and they're very much trying to distance themselves from that original foundation to the point that I think if you took the brooms away and the hoops weren't so recognisable as a pop culture thing, the game would almost be able to exist irrespective of that. The rules are that there's basically seven players on each team, your three chasers, your two beaters, um, a keeper and a seeker. And essentially the snitch comes on after 18 minutes until the snitch comes on. And I'll explain how that happens in a minute. It's essentially just quaffle play. So you're trying to score with your three chasers to get the ball through the hoops. You get 10 points if you do it a la harry potter the bludgers if you get hit by a bludger um, you have to run around your defensive hoop at the other end so if you're in possession of the quaffle and you get hit by the bludger it's essentially an automatic change of position which is how they usually end up using that element of the game um, the catch is that the snitch comes on after 18 minutes the snitch is an actual person so they have a snitch runner um, who can grapple who can try and like fend people off has a snitch attached to their pants the aim is to catch The Snitch, Um, if you do that, you get 30 points. So quite a lot of games have The Snitch. It matters. Some of them don't. um, And obviously, your Seekers come on at the same time as The Snitch. Um, The weirdest thing watching it is you don't know where to look when everything's in play, but that's really only usually the last phase of the game.
1: Sounds amazing. I'm so interested in this, just mostly because I'm such a big Harry Potter fan, and I'm just trying to conceptualise what this game looks like outside of the realms of fiction can you explain to me, (laughs) the snitch is a person Mm. and I still can't get my head around the snitch being a person. That just seems so bizarre to me. So you have someone running onto the field after a certain amount of time, who's completely impartial, who's getting chased like playground tiggy style by people with brooms between their legs.
2: Yeah. Sorry. So they have, they do have different levels of snitch as well. So like If it's a big, like, so the World Cup final will have the best snitch. So they'll have someone who's exceedingly quick, exceedingly athletic, very good at grappling people off. Whereas in, like, local games, it's kind of just like, we need to find an umpire in the same way, oh, we just need to find someone to be the snitch. But, like, at World Cup level, they have, like, designated snitches. It's essentially just an extra referee. So when the snitch comes on, the whistle, the referee blows his whistle, like, oh, snitch on. And there's, then the snitch has its own referee, so it has another referee that comes on to referee what's going on with the catching of the snitch to ensure that it's a clean and legal catch.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> so explain to me why um, Quidditch now wants to distance themselves from, like you mentioned before, the origi- like the origins of it being from that Comic-Con style game that was more of like a, I don't know, homage to the film and people nerding out about the connections of that game to the films and the books, why does it now want to distance itself a little bit from that?
2: So the explanation I got was that it makes it really hard for them to attract actual athletes, like legitimate people who want to play a sport and want to play something that's physical and want to train for something. And in lieu of that, you tend to just be able to pitch to people that love Harry Potter. Um, And I think for the quality of the actual game and the contest, it needs better quality athletes that want to play it. To enhance it as a spectacle and as, as an enjoyment experience and to be more challenging for the people that have been playing it for multiple years,
0: but it, to use this to use a football cliche, surely the most important part of an organization is knowing where you're at and you like you'd say that you, like you're obviously not going to get paid to play quidditch unfortunately it's it's not going to be a living sport well so you can't make never a living... Say never. you can't make a living and you can't represent your country in it or you can't represent your country in A a truly global event.
2: Well, the World Cup's pretty global. Teams from Europe, teams from America, teams from Australia, some random teams from countries that have barely ever seen Quidditch before. Mm -hmm. It's not global in the sense that there's the opportunity to compete against 200 countries like football. Mm -hmm. Um, But just to put it in context, I think Quidditch in Australia has a 1,000 formal signed-up registered members, Mm -hmm. approximately. They need 5,000 for it to be considered a sport by the Australian Sports Commission, which is the long-term ambition of Quidditch Australia, again, a governing body that exists.
1: Are you going to sign up to help make up those numbers?
2: Look, I'd be open to it because I think it... Like, so I kind of watched and I'm... So I am going to do some writing around this and I was very sort of like, I, I don't know if it lends itself to participatory George Plinton-style journalism, but then I was on second thought, yes, which I haven't organised to do, but... <laughs> I was kind of sitting there watching and I'm like, actually, this kind of looks like a little bit of fun. Hmm. Like where, and I was like, where? what position would I slot into? I would inevitably be a keeper because the keepers are always very tall. Um, hmm.
1: I was going to say you should be a beater.
2: I don't know if I'm brutal enough.
1: Hmm. Um, yeah, you're probably right. So
2: two sort of ongoing questions for me were, um, firstly, it's the, the, real, the only multi-gender contact sport that
1: exists. That's interesting. Well,
2: yeah, and so they kind of have, for want of a better way of putting it, a don't be a dick kind of rule around physical contact. There are some, like, so you can't shoulder charge, but there's a little bit of, like, honour in terms of how the contact rolls out. Um, It's one of those things where unduly rough conduct never really gets called because no one really pushes it to that limit. So there's kind of an accepted standard. I don't know if that cuts the mustard if it wants to be taken when you
0: say contact, though, like what is the contact?
2: You can tackle, chases,
0: like to the ground, to yeah.
2: the yeah, to the ground, yeah. Um, you can grapple with other players, etc. There's quite often pylons where the quaffle will be jumped on by like three or four players, and if that situation occurs, what normally happens is they just start throwing bludges at people, so they all get knocked out and have to run somewhere, which breaks <laughs> up the, the fracas. Um. So yeah, I don't know how long as as an issue. I don't know if that will be a problem long term.
0: I don't see why not. Why, why would it be a problem? Hmm. There, there's already there's like it's it's not even it's it's within the rules that they have they have like a a self officiating principle there with with the bludgers hmm. to prevent any real fracker. And then if there was going to be a proper fracker, then the referees would be like, "No, nah, you're being bludgered, Get out. That's a penalty. I presume they're penalties." Yeah yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah. So yeah. there are obviously ways to enforce the unduly rough conduct mm. if it's needed. And I think the interesting thing is the further up you go, the it tends to get rough like so when it's a World Cup final it's rougher than, you know, the local knockabout. Game, yeah. Which actually you could say that for some other sports potentially.
0: Yeah. In terms for of most what, sports. what
2: flies the the more competitive it gets the
0: more Well, there's always there's always the grand final rule of like, you know, you don't call you don't call marginal free hits or fouls in a grand mm. final or a funnel series. Yeah. That you would in a hone away game.
2: So, so that line is very movable. Um, very, very movable. And the, the second thing I sort of was trying to work out when I was watching this is whether there is another sport with two very distinct scoring mechanisms that kind of exist very independently of one another. So obviously in this you have quaffle play and the ability to score through the hoops and then the snitch. And I just don't know if there's another sport that has a separation of scoring that's quite the same as that. Because in muggle or human terms, if you took the broomstick from between the legs out, which is really just sort of a meter-long pole, you would kind of have um, two ways of looking at it. Water polo on land um, because you always kind of, with the stick, you have to have one hand on it unless you have a ball. Or sorry, you have to have both hands on it unless you have a ball, I think. Um, So it's almost like water polo on land, but it's also like a weird combination of like chasey slash wrestling with the snitch and then like any sort of Ball sport with scoring with hoops, and then there's also dodgeball with the bludgers. So it's kind of like three sports merged into one. Mm. It is, yeah. Um, And I'm Mm. trying to, I just don't know if there's a comparable example in human non magical affairs.
1: I'm trying to think in my head if we can sort of parlay this game into our chess boxing match that we've got set up between the two of you to make it some sort of tri sport series. I think it can happen. I'm going to work on that.
0: Before you move on, I feel like we're about to drift off into another segue, but um, do, do you feel like removing themselves from the book is actually going to do themselves a disservice to the longevity of the game? Because I feel like, so my, the immediate thing I thought of was GAA Sports, so the, the Gaelic Athletic Association, where they do, they have kind of thumbed their nose at sports science, et cetera, around their, their athletes to kind of instill the sense of culture within their sport. And so maybe there's a little more legitimate reason for that because it's based on, in inverted commas, an actual culture as opposed to a fictional one. But at the end of the day, a culture is a culture and the people who like the books are real people. So it's a real fan culture. Um, but like say in, in GAA, when they have the all-island final in hurling or in, in Gaelic football, they, like, they, don't, they partake in like a four-hour cultural um like ritual. They have to like they march through the center of Dublin, they go and they, they they sing and they dance, they do all that beforehand. And then they play football straight after the straight after that. So there's no time for warm-up or anything like that. They just go dancing, singing, chanting the biggest final they'll ever play in that sport. And if they wanted to make that more legitimate and compete with AFL where they lose players to, they could make it professional. They could make it more sport centric and more efficiency orientated. But they don't, because they know they know that it came from that Celtic culture, and they are as proud of that as they are of the sport. So why why remove it from where it, from its origins? Because no other sport really has done that. Like every other sport has come organically from that. There wasn't a, well, there wasn't a moment in AFL where they went, "Oh no, we have to separate ourselves from our origins and become and take down NFL or whatever."
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought it was a bit weird. Because like, I can only see as a person a very clear reason for playing this as I love Harry Potter. Like, I don't know. I come from a more traditional sporting background. I don't think that's who they're aiming at. But from my perspective, the only reason to play it would probably be because Harry Potter's great. So I don't know whether you're going to... Yeah, I guess that's if you're pitching it to non-sporting people, then there's a chance. But if you're pitching it to people that have... Grown up in heavily sporting households, I just don't know why this would be what you would choose. But mate, potentially, if you, you like, find me if I can find the Quidditch player that doesn't like Harry Potter. That's intensely interesting to me, in terms of what inspired them to be involved. It might just be they knew someone, and I guess that
0: does happen. But yeah, interesting thing to keep half an eye on. Because the other, the other like equivalent would be Ultimate Frisbee.
2: Well, that to me was the closest thought I had when I looked at how the game has generally been organised. So it's generally student population, very big in uni, like very big, but predominantly played in universities, uh, co-ed, etc. Um, but with tackling, so yeah, yeah similar. De- I I just get a similar demographic sort of vibe and similar culture and feel around it in terms of it's quite a social thing still for a lot of people and. Um,
1: can you yeah. drink butter beer at the end of it?
2: Butter beer tastes like crap, Casey. Wow! If you've been to wow. Harry Potter World in London,
1: I've been to Harry Potter World in Orlando. Of and-
2: course you have, because <laughs> you've been to America.
1: America, America.
3: America.
2: So that's <laughs> a, my terrible way of segueing into Casey's American wow. adventure. Um, You've been parading around, your our American girl, the adventures of Huckleberry Syme, not Sim. I wanted it to be so desperately the adventures of Huckleberry Sim for this introduction. Um, What have you been up to? How was your conference? What sporting events did you get to? Tell us all the
3: goals.
1: Wow, there's so much to tell. Um, I had an amazing two and a half weeks in the States. Um, It was a very quick trip, very busy trip. I managed to jam four live sporting events into that time, which was amazing. And then I had a wonderful opportunity to speak at California State University in Northridge uh, to some undergraduate students about my research on female fans of elite male sports, which was really, really cool. Um, That was a really great opportunity. And it was just really nice to talk to uh, students who are at sort of an undergraduate level who are just sort of starting out their academic journey and um, and sort of doing a lot of sports history and women in sports stuff as well. And they had some really great questions, which was great for me because it challenged me a little bit. And then we had some really great discussions and, I don't know, just made me want to work in a college in America one day. So we'll put that on the to-do list. So that was really fun. Um, and then I got to, like, achieve one of my life goals, which is to see a Lakers game.
2: And you brought us back little Lakers goodie bags with Hunter S. Thompson-esque Vegas hats, which I'm (laughs) so excited to ironically wear everywhere this summer. be
1: sun smart, wear my Vegas hats I bought you. So
2: how was the Lakers? It was the Lakers and the Mavs?
1: Lakers and the Mavs. Um, It was a really interesting experience because, like, I could split it into two experiences. On the one hand... I've been very privileged in my life to travel to the US a lot. Um, this was actually my eighth visit, so I've been very lucky and had some great opportunities, but I'd never been to a Lakers game before, and I'm a massive Lakers fan. Um, I'd been to NBA matches before, but just with timelines and everything, it never really worked out for me that I could do that. So when I went over for this trip, I actually purposely waited for the schedule to drop for this season so I could manufacture my time in Los Angeles to see that game, um, I went online at 4am in the morning with a pre-sale code to buy my tickets, which were ridiculously expensive, but I didn't care. And when I got to the Staples Centre, which I had been there before, um, I'd seen a LA Sparks game there in the WNBA and I'd seen a Clippers game there before. But it just had just a completely different feeling to it. I was really emotional. I actually got really, like, amped up about it. I couldn't believe that I was doing it. I just thought that was something that I would never be able to do in my lifetime was seeing a Lakers game. To me, it was so intangible. And I was just on cloud nine the whole game. I was just so, so happy. But on the other hand, it was a rubbish match. <laughs> it was such a rubbish game of basketball to watch. But um, I don't care. The Lakers still won. They only won by a single point. They should have won by 20 because they were playing a depleted Mavericks side. But
2: You do sound like uh, a Lakers fan. Um, so tell us what. So tell us how the game actually went down. So the start, the Lakers shot out to a lead. Is that right?
1: Yeah, Lakers started really well, um, which they sort of have been doing, but um, they just don't play defence. Um, this is before they'd recruited Tyson Chandler as well, so they still had a bit of a hole in their defence, which, I mean, they still really do now, really. But it was just a bit like what you would expect of a t- typical Lakers game this season. It was a LeBron show, so they put up a lot of points. Um So that was exciting to see. I loved it. But at the same time, it was just scrappy, scrappy. Um, Dallas took advantage of a lot of that, came back towards the end. I was terrified that it was going to go into overtime, um, which it almost did because LeBron went to the line. That's
2: bang for your buck.
1: (laughs) Not in in Lakers games because we usually lose. (laughs) Um, but because what had happened is LeBron went to the line with about 20 seconds to go um, to shoot three throws, which he's been terrible at this season. Um, a couple of days before, he'd done the similar thing in a game and missed both of them and we'd lost the game in overtime. So I just thought this is going to be a repeat of that. I'm going to have a losing experience at my first ever Lakers game. Um, He missed one, which made me very nervous, but then he got the second one, which allowed us to win by a point.
2: (laughs) I can't believe one person can feel that many things in the space of one basketball game.
1: I'm a really emotional person. So was
2: was it everything you dreamed it would be?
1: Yeah, for sure.
2: And by the same token, would it have been everything you dreamed it would be if they lost?
1: Uh, I think so, because I think I put so much stock in just the experience of being there, of just seeing them on the court in front of me. Um, That was just like that whole pre-show that they do, like rolling the videos and having all the music and the fireworks and everything. That was enough for me, um, because that just sort of gave me this feeling that, I just don't think I could replicate again. That was just something that was really beautiful and really important to me as a fan, and I'm just so glad I experienced that. If we'd lost, it probably would have been a little bit sad, but um, I'm a Lakers fan, so I'm used to it, so it's fine. Um, but I'm so happy that we There's won. There's
2: also 100, and, 100 or so games in a year. Yeah. So, like, you know, better luck like next time, tomorrow night. Um, <laughs> so one thing you were pleasantly surprised by, judging on the messages you were sending back to us, on the group chat, was your experience at the National Hockey League?
1: Yeah, oh, hockey is so fun. So, who did you see? So, I saw the Anaheim Ducks play the Columbus Blue Jackets. Not the Mighty Ducks. Uh, oh, they're the only fictional. They're only the, the
2: fictional. No, they're real.
1: <laughs> uh, they used to be called the Mighty Ducks, oh. I think, and then they went through a rebrand. I'm, I'm showing pretty my
2: sure. lack of knowledge. My so my ice hockey experience, and I'm sorry to make this about me as per, um, was dislocating a medial ligament when I went ice skating to do ice hockey in like year five PE and I've never been back. Ouch. Yep. So why did you enjoy this more than you expected?
3: Um,
1: I think, as I said before on the podcast, with, with ice hockey, I don't have any connection to the game. I don't really understand the game. Um, We just went along because we got cheap tickets and it was on in Anaheim when I happened to be down there going to Disneyland. <laughs> it was on that night, so we thought, why not? We'll go to Disneyland and then we'll go to the hockey. Um, I don't know who the Columbus Blue Jackets are. I don't even know what a blue what jacket it, what is. What is a blue jacket? Yeah, I have no idea about, like, if, um, like, I know Anaheim made it to the Western Conference Championships last year, um, so I knew they were okay, but I didn't know if they are any good this season. Yeah, I had no idea the context of, like, where Columbus were at. So we just went along just to check it out. And it was just super exciting. So Anaheim um, pretty much led most of the game. They were um, 2-1 up with, I think it was about a minute left to go in the third period, and then Columbus scored. And then it went into overtime, which... I didn't know this about ice hockey, so excuse my ignorance. But in overtime, they play three-on-three golden goal. And I was bloody amazing. I was so exciting. So I just was so amped up because my mum was sat next to me. I went with my mother and she was a bit like, oh, overtime, oh, my God, this is going to take forever because we're kind of used to NBA overtime where it's five minutes but could be anywhere up to 15 with timeouts and stoppages and all that sort of stuff. So we're thinking we're going to be sat there for a while. And when they said it was going to be golden goal, I was like, "This is exciting!" I was so excited. And then Anaheim scored within 32 seconds to win it, and that was it. It was game over. It was mm. like bang done. It was mm. so exciting. I had so, the best. I,
2: so, Boulder, you saw the University of Colorado in action in the college football.
1: Yeah, which was a really different experience. I went to visit a friend of mine um, who was in Boulder, in Colorado. What's his name? He, his name is Matt. Thank hey, you. Matt, if you're listening. Um, thank you for taking me to the game despite your team losing spectacularly. <laughs>
0: well, I was about to say, when you had Washington State's a pretty decent American uh, college football team. They and are. Uh, I've never heard of the University of Colorado slash Boulder uh, as it's a, in a, as it's a in college a team. Boulder's in a song. No, it's not, I know where the no, What's it called? In, like, paper they're not, they're, not, a, paper they're not a top 25 AP ranked college team. It's where you steal a mattress from. They, they were going to get thumped. but
1: Yes, they did get thumped. Um, but that was okay because it was just a fun day out. Um, we kind of went along. You get to sort of be part of that whole fan experience that is really prevalent in college sports. Um, we sat sort of in this like little alumni area. So we will sat around what I can assume were men who had attended the school because they were probably in about their 50s, heavily invested, decked out in all the gear, singing all the chants, yep. drinking.
2: They, they um, would be the alumni.
1: <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I would hope they were alumni and not just ranch fans. I just –
2: like <laughs> – don't. Oh, sometimes you just need to not be your stereotype, but whatever. Play on. <laughs> I
1: loved it. I loved the stereotype. And they were so lovely to me. Um nice. Like, I sat down to this guy and he shook my hand as soon as I got there and he heard the accent and asked where I was from and um, tried to sort of explain the game to me a little bit, which is really nice. Um, and then they kind of got a bit full on with their cheering and I kind of just ignored them for a little bit, but they were doing their thing. They were having a great time. They were getting really angry um, at how much they were sucking, which is understandable. And then they do just cool things, like they've got their marching band going on, which is beautiful. Um, They have a live bison called Ralphie that runs out before the game and at (laughs) halftime, which is amazing. Borderline unethical. They take good care of Ralphie. Um, My friend was explaining to me that they actually have, like, a team Ralphie that you have to audition for to actually be, like, legitimately trained in animal handling, and Ralphie gets taken care of very well. And she does a run that just, like... She's kind of like left on her own. She's trained just to run around the field and then she's taken back to her little stable where she lives and she's looked after very well with what I'm told and I'm just going to accept that. And she was really cute. I was really into Ralphie.
2: So when are you doing a, a veterinary course?
1: <laughs> so we can go over so and be a Ralphie, a Ralphie handler very soon. What a name
2: for a horse. Oh, it's okay. a bison. bison. Yeah. A, well... Same horse, no, you know, not the same thing. But <laughs> my mind's on thing. my mind's on horse racing, and now I'm thinking Ralphie down the straight of Flemington.
1: Yeah, Ralphie has an Instagram account. If anyone wants to find oh. out more about Ralphie, the what's C, the, what's the handle? I think it's CU Buffs Ralphie.
2: Put it in the episode notes. I reckon. <laughs> Yeah,
1: <laughs> she's really cute and terrifying. Can,
2: sorry, can so bison's? Yeah, can bison's be cute?
1: I think so. I think, I yeah, think anything all can be anything cute. can be cute. Yeah.
2: No, that's not.
0: Yeah, I've seen and a cute, no,
1: no.
2: Have you ever seen a cute tarantula?
0: Okay, so I challenge you on this. <laughs> <laughs> or a cute carpet python? Uh, definitely a cute carpet well, python.
2: Well, I don't want to make cuteness, a joke about cuteness, you liking snakes. Cuteness is
0: in there with like BDE or being a snake. BDE though, like, you'd have big cute energy. Like it, it's not like a yeah. look thing. It's like a, it's a mm. it's a persona that Ralphie had. Like, like she was so like joyous and yeah. she was yeah.
1: I think Ralphie definitely has BDE for sure. She's a boss.
0: Wow. And BCE as well.
3: Cause she's cute. And she's really cute. Where have she's we She's a cute to?
1: boss bison. <laughs> God. But yeah, that was awesome. And it was really cool just to be somewhere a bit different as well and sort of see a bit of a different culture and check out a different university. And it snowed when I was there, which was super cool.
0: So you went to four uh, different events three professional, one college, no women's events. No. And no as the patron events. saint of women's sport, I would have thought that you definitely would have hit up some of the uh, women's NCAA games that were on. During that time, he's diplomatic, yes. and what he means to say is, "You're a fraud."
1: A <laughs> Fraud, such a fraud. I'm bad feminist. I know. I went to lots of WNBA Sorry, no when I was there in feminist. June. <laughs> so I had been to US-based women's sports before, and in this year, um, there was a I think there was a, a CU Boulder, um, is it CU yeah CU Boulder women's basketball game like the day after I left, which I was pretty upset that I couldn't attend. But yes, this was a very Male sports dominated trip I'm very conscious of that So thanks for bringing that up Gordon <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back again next year And see more WNBA So I'll be back Women in sport I'm back, coming back for
3: you Bye.
2: Do you want to send us flying along into tonight's bumper edition of Book Club? I am so excited for this.
0: Yes. Well, I think excited is a bit of an interesting word to use there, JB, because it's, it's just going to be a bit of a, a touchy topic. And unfortunately, as, a, as was a premonition uh, with the book that it could be an issue that becomes perennial, it was again. But uh, Book Club today is Night Games by Anna Crane, and it is about uh, essentially the power dynamics that... Uh, kind of uh, in the Venn diagram of sex and sports politics and the toxic masculinity that 's involved in sp- current professional male sports culture and where women fit within that, and obviously written before the prevalence of AFLW and the growing role of women 's sport in Australia and so looking back on that now it's actually interesting to see have we have we improved as a society, have women now kind of got themselves a foothold in, in sport? And does being active in sports actually help the cause of having a more equal and involved in an in inviting culture within sport, not just for females at work within male sporting environments, but also for all different minority groups that find themselves kind of ostracized and often exploited in these environments? So I think On rereading this book, what was our initial take? Like, have we improved or is it a bit of a, oh, I'm really sad that this book written in 2013 is still very much the situation in 2018?
1: For me, it's definitely the latter. Um, I don't see a lot of improvement, just to put that out on the table. Um, This book makes me so sad. This book is a really hard read. Um, For someone who read it when it first came out in 2013, I used it extensively in my honours thesis at the time. And I could pretty much still write a very similar thesis now if I was going to do that with my PhD at the moment based on what hasn't changed. Um, This is such a tough book to read at any time, I think. Um, And it was really devastating reading it again five years later. Uh, I don't know from your point of view, JB, because you only read it for the first time recently, so I don't know what your position is having read it at this time not sort of having that first initial read over a long period of time to, like, what your thoughts are if it's you think it's dated and things are different from when it was written or if you're thinking that you read it, that it could have been written yesterday?
2: So I knew this was an issue. I don't think I'd thought about it in the level of detail that this book made me think about it, which means that I don't think I'm qualified to give a then a now mm. comparison because I'm only considering this now. Yeah. Um, I wasn't looking at the th- stuff that was going on in 2013 and going, oh, I should have been because um, this is probably one of the most important books as a male follower of elite sport you can, or it just an involvee in elite sport you can read. Um, I read it so quickly. I read it in like two or three days Um. But it was so confronting, mm-hmm. and it was weird because on one hand it was super confronting, and on the other, I could not put it down. Yeah, um,
0: right. as, as As a true crime book, which is essentially the the genre that it is, as well as an, an exploration into yet yeah, into the cultural dynamics, yeah. And Anna, Anna Karen's done a really good job of running a true crime thriller, mm. even though strangely, like the ending's given away at the very beginning of the book. So she she creates suspense in a in a in a in what is yeah, narrative journalism, in a way, without relying on on plot, and it is, I think, a lot of that thrilling aspect of the book is is that, especially as a male reader, is almost that that fear that there will be no repercussions. That's the kind of I, like the story you get is that he can't. Sh- the question you always ask yourself in this book is, surely he can't get off?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, sh-
0: well, surely. This is where the alarm bells for me, as
2: I was reading it, were just a constant stream of. Hang on. Why is this the issue that we're trying here? Like issue, bigger issues too. Like that, I couldn't get my head off that for the whole book. Like we are talking in large parts here about totally the wrong thing.
0: But have you read the book, The First Stone? No. So that's another. That's a similar one where these they what what Anna's done there is is open up this conversation beyond beyond what I said. Often the flaws in the Me Too, like the Me Too movement. Where the first thing that a male will do is that I'm not one of those people. And this book tries to expand the expand the conversation to involve you. to say we're not saying particularly you, but we're saying this is a male issue. And in reality, like we look at often there is a story, probably monthly, about an elite footballer who's done some act of indecency all the way up to actual act like criminal acts of of assault. But the number of those people within the elite sporting population is quite small. The problem is that we excuse that number. So we go and say, oh, this is just a minority, it's a one-off. But one-offs are too many. And that's kind of where she's done well in writing this book to say, let's all be involved and realise what has happened to allow that one-off to happen. And that's where you say elite sport. Elite sport's not the issue. It's sport no, in no, no. general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And this is when you go to the, you know, the, the, the old school pine poor nights at a... At, uh, at like country football clubs and you know those kind of stripper nights and footy trips that go all the way down to playing twenty eighth division country football and whatever, there there is a there is a serious problem within these very. It's not even being masculine; it's these like power, power hierarchical dominated situations where none of this stuff. I, I, often I don't even think this stuff is about sex or anything like that. It's just showing power, just being I am the alpha person in this situation, yep. and I will treat. Women, juniors, volunteers, and everyone else poorly to prove that I am more powerful than everyone else, and that's kind of the problem that we have still. And because often that you have people in these positions that are talented, that talent offweighs what they can do and how much how much leash they have.
3: Mm.
1: It's a hundred percent about power. You are definitely right there. I think what you say is really interesting when you talk about this kind of stuff on that like that macro level at those those sporting events where it's not we're not talking about. Men who are committing sexual assault all the time. It's about those really, what could be really innate conversations for those men in those environments, that how they talk about women or how women are framed or how those events allow them to behave in a way that puts them outside of society. And I think that's really prevalent in like the final part of the book where Anna meets um, the defendant again, and he's with his girlfriend. And she's talking to him post the trial, I think it's a couple of months after, and she's asking how he is and how how he's doing and he's like yeah you know I'm so much better now I've got a girlfriend like things are going okay for me and um she asks him so do you talk about women in a dro- in a derogatory way anymore and he says no and his girlfriend kind of pipes up and says yes you do you like you say terrible things about women with your friends and then he kind of says oh well, I guess but because I'm in it I don't really see it and it's just such a throwaway line and i think That's the really important stuff that needs to be spoken about more. Like, yes, at the top level, women being assaulted by men in positions of power is horrendous and shouldn't happen. But it comes from those initial moments where you can have those conversations where women are spoken about in that way and you do get a sense of power from talking about a complete gender that is you consider lower from yourself and it's okay. So that gets licensed along the way and it builds and it builds and it builds. Hmm. So I think that's the stuff that we need to start having more conversations about is the real macro level stuff.
2: And for me, that's like the biggest male outtake from the book is that when you read it and where Crean stands, you watch it as an outsider. You don't watch it necessarily. You watch it, it's almost like watching yourself. It's like, I'm sure, it's like watching yourself in a mirror or watching yourself like in a other bodily experience, like as a male who's been in those questionable cultural scenarios. And because it takes you to that point, it takes you to the, I don't see it because I'm in it. And then you realize you're not seeing it. Like mm-hmm. That quote is so poignant in terms of, it ties up with the viewpoint that the book makes you take as a male reading it. Because there are so many things that I looked at when I read that and just went, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. This stuff doesn't check out, but you don't, when you're in that moment as a male sportsman, and it's it's not even. Well, I'm not talking serious stuff. It's just like off the cuff comments. Yeah. Whatever it is, you don't think about it.
0: But see that there, that there is the Freudian slip to say it's not serious stuff. That's that's yeah, where the yeah, slippery yeah, yeah. slope begins, mm-hmm. and you go. So it's all serious stuff. And like because it's it's the conversations that I had is what allows the next step to happen, and the next Absolutely. step to happen, and the next step to happen. And so I think what also I think is good about not victimizing. Uh, Justin who was the the defendant in the book is she sees that he is a product of that situation so she never excludes him from blame because obviously he did the act yeah but she does write in a really explore in a really detailed way how he got to that position and all the things that either he didn't see or he felt coerced into doing to fit in and that's the other part of where I think there's almost hope though is because, yeah, 2013, things like The Footy Show were still one of the highest rating TV shows of all time yeah. in, in the football space. Now it's being axed. So it's, 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 it's a small, it's like there were a few little wins. We've got more campaigns around not only about women's, women's rights and women's uh, position in sport, but also for other minority groups and other sexual orientations and more and more men coming out as non heteronormative and all those little, like little wins, so that there are people. We know that there are people inside these sporting clubs across all different levels that clearly don't have this view, and more and more are speaking up about it, and not feeling scared to lose that position in the club or in the in their group because they know that. Well, if I get if I get ostracised, then we'll say so what? I don't want to be there anyway. Then, I, I, for my own personal experiences in male sporting environments, I'm I'm personally getting to that stage now. It's like, well, if they don't want to. Notice that I have an opinion on this that's different to theirs, and I think a, a better way of looking at things. Then I don't want to be in this club, and I will change and I'll leave environments that don't suit and don't work. And I think more and more people are doing that, which is a plus. But it's obviously, there's like a huge way to go.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think. I mean, I can't say that nothing has changed in five years, and I think there's definitely been progress made. And I think you know, younger men are definitely more aware of the experiences of women and definitely have a different mindset now which is really positive but there's just little things along the way that happen all the time that are small things um which again is probably the slip because they're not small to me um like even this morning like I was reading the newspaper and I was reading an article um I think it was Daniel Cherney in The Age who was writing about draft prospects and um I think the young guy from South Australia, his name is, I think it's Isaac Rancine. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was just a throwaway line in the article and it said something like, Rancine who has a rose tattoo and counts among his heroes, Chris Brown and Tupac. And I just thought, why is a young man idolising someone like Chris Brown and putting that in print? And why is a journalist like Daniel Cherney not asking another question about why he idolises someone like Chris Brown who was convicted of beating up his partner. So that just says to me that there's still such a lack of an, of awareness around these issues and how they affect women, which you can read a lot of, into that. You could just be like, well, he's probably just a fan of his music. He probably does understand that he did something wrong, but he's you know paid his dues and all of that sort of stuff. But that conversation doesn't happen. Um, and I think that's still just like... A, something like that is still just a little signpost that violence against women and issues that pertain to women are still not taken seriously. And athletes are still able to walk through that space with a sense of power and entitlement that they don't have to think about those things. So I think there's been a lot of work done. I think the Me Too movement's really important but I also still think it's operating at a really high level, which I think it needs to do for a while. Um, and it's only just starting to come into sport a little bit. Like, you know, the biggest case would have been, you know, the Dr. Larry Nasser thing that happened in the States and the doctor of the gymnastics team over there, which was horrific. Um, that big stuff needs to happen so it can come down to the little things to really change that. But I think it's still... It's still going to take a lot of time, which is scary um, because I think a lot happens at this bottom level while we're dealing with that top level stuff that still contributes to those top level horrific events still happening.
3: Hmm.
0: And as I, I, I'll put this in the show notes as well, but there was a, an interview before uh, this book was released because Anna Crane also wrote a monthly essay about the St. Kilda schoolgirl incident. And so she sat down with uh, Tony Wilson and talked about her essay on that and also the same issues. So that was 2011?
1: Yeah, that happened in the summer of 2010. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. She so two, event,
0: two yeah. years before she wrote this book and this mm. event happened, she was discussing this, not a similar event because there was a lot more power dynamics at and play. And
2: the St Kilda was featured in the book itself. Yeah,
0: yes. yeah. But uh, from that quote was a Tony Wilson quote, which I think pertains to what you just said. So his quote is, they're always going to do it, being sports people and sportsmen in particular, they're always going to be that percentage. This will be a perennial story. We'll be still talking about this in 30 years to come, but the person who has flashed his balls at the back of the bus, there'll be another Chris Judd, however, in the front of that bus, shaking his head with his head in his hands. And it is for the parents and children and the teenagers themselves to say, who do I want to be like? And so what I found interesting about your comment with Daniel Cherney is that it might sound a bit lovey-dovey doing a bit philosophical, but as a journalist, yes, he has to write the story to fill the to file the page to fill the space about the draft prospect was having on Thursday. But also, when someone says that, like their heroes are Tupac and Chris Brown, surely he, as a journalist, has a, like a journalist almost like a journalist oath to be like, I need to ask that second question. I need I need to advance this conversation to say why, mm. and even if I don't publish it, I can just still ask why and check like. Has anything Is anything changing? Like, do you know why that could be wrong? Do you want that to be on the public record? Do you want to choose a different artist? Anything like that to kind of get these teenagers in that yep. system to go, oh, actually, no, like, you've made a really good point. Because otherwise, that's, that's, that will be the sad part about that quote is that, well, yeah, a very small percentage will, but we need to have more of the Chris Judge shaking their heads and being like, this is not on, versus the dudes flashing their balls because, oh, I can do whatever I want. I can Mm. flaunt my power and my power is my genitalia because I am male.
1: Yeah. Um, But then we also need the Chris Judds, air quote, Chris Judds of the world to not just put their head in their hands and to actually say something, which is Mm. the next step as well. Because I think there are plenty of people who put their head in their hands and say, mate, that's not on and that's not cool, but that's it. Mm. Um, They don't actually make a stand. And I think the really important thing that um, Anna Crane does in this book too is she includes herself as part of that because I also don't want to just sit here and be like, well, I'm the perfect feminist who is also calling out this behaviour in men who I'm involved with because it is so incredibly fraught to be in those spaces and to feel... Unsafe and and wanting to include as well, especially in sport when the culture is to belong, even if you're not an athlete as, as part of a, like a fan base. So, I think what resonated a lot with me was how she involved herself in that narrative and she const- constantly questioned her own position on things and how she was thinking about things as a woman. And, you know, she questions her her feminism a lot in this book. And I think that's a really brave thing to do because, you know, she actually calls out a couple of times what she thinks, you know, actual feminists were going to be mad with her for some of the things that she's written. And I feel that all the all the time as, as a female fan and a feminist, um, because I do place myself in environments where there is a lot of hyper-masculine activity and, and behaviour and things that are said that make me feel uncomfortable. But I'm not the perfect feminist who always calls that out and I don't remove myself from those spaces because I love the game and I want to be there. And there's so many times where I've seen things that I really it makes me sad that I didn't take more action, but that's something that I'm trying to work through. And I think that's a really important th- thing that she did is she placed herself in that narrative to say, well, I'm still figuring it out too. She wasn't the You know, she kind of says a couple of times that she should be unbiased because she's the journalist, but I think it's more powerful that she is biased as a journalist and she's acknowledging her bias because Mm. that's the really important discussion to have because, you know, we've been framed um, to have opinions about women in sport for so long and we're starting to change those opinions. But for a lot of us who do have those inherent gender biases, even though we acknowledge them, it's still hard to change them. Like some of them are still so natural and just come out without you even realising. It might even take you a couple of days to figure out like, oh, actually, on the game on the weekend, this person said this. I should have said something. Mm, Um, Or even if you do know it's bad, sometimes you just don't feel safe enough to call it out.
2: And I think everyone has those moments. mm. And I think on the issue of objectivity, I think that the acknowledgement of her bias is really, really, really important because I think if you subscribe to the view that everyone comes from a particular worldview and a background in culture... um, particularly in something as long as a book I think it's a big advantage of the book that she does actually reveal and acknowledge that in advance. She doesn't try and be a perfect stand-up put me mm. on a pedestal feminist.
1: Yeah. I think you're right. I think that's probably the part of the book I respected the most because yeah. there's things that she says that I completely like I don't agree with. Yeah,
2: and she mm. puts her head on the I think it might have been Malcolm Knox who reviewed it and said that she's not necessarily going to win friends from either side having read yeah. this book, which I thought was really interesting because this was written with Without that, that wasn't an issue. She was happy to put her head on whatever chopping block people were going to put it on.
0: Well, that came out anyway. a lot of a lot of the book reviews and a lot of the book talks. She did her number one fear after seeing it published on stands was her two. One of her two loves of, in life was feminism and football, and she felt by writing that she betrayed both. Mm. It's like, well, like yeah, the people that actually enjoy hanging out with are either one, the other, or both, and they're going to read this book and disagree with at least half of what I am saying.
1: Yeah. I can't imagine what that must feel like. You can
2: be f- I mean, that you don't have to agree with your friends on everything
0: politically. No, but this I understand is, but, why but again, this is it. not really a political statement. It's more no. like we we by by having this conversation, we're actually saying it's not a it's not it's not it's not something to say like oh we can have a political disagreement. It's that this is wrong. Like that's that's the part where we have to get to. And again, and it's kind of interesting that even between the three of us, we have these Freudian slips of oh it's just a disagreement or it's not just a small thing. And it's like. Well, whilst we still say that even amongst, in a comfortable environment amongst friends, that's still a concern. It's like we know we're kind of you know, dismaying the, the actual problem without saying, no, actually, let's be honest, it, these acts are wrong and they shouldn't happen, and until collectively and individually we do something about it, nothing will change. Which leads into another quote from that same video in 2011 where Anna said, I don't know how women can become equal in a world of football because women will never go out on the oval and play in front of huge amounts of roaring fans, so that's that's May two thousand and eleven for the context before she wrote this book, and obviously since then we have AFLW. Mm-hmm. Now it's not it's roaring fans, roaring fans, yes, huge amounts, not yet except for one or two games. But do you think, especially in in a football environment, so AFL in particular, has the creation of AFLW given? for lack of a better word, legitimacy to women's role in the sport and therefore help propel them as like an equal in those environments? No. Or is it just a side, yeah, just a side pocket?
1: Yeah, no. Um, Because the competition, it, this is just talking about AFLW, not all women's sports. That competition is not equal to the men's. It's not treated the same way. Um yes the heroes of their game are the women who are out on the field, but they're still managed by men predominantly. Men are still being given the opportunities to succeed in their careers around that sport. Um, I hope that it does get to a point where it does fix that situation, but right now, no. Um, And I know it's early days with the AFLW competition and it does need room to grow. But, And this is something I get asked asked a lot in terms of my research um, into female fans of men's sport. They ask... um, Does AFLW change the fan culture as well, Um, which I don't think it does because the people who are making the issues, which, yes, are predominantly men um, in those spaces, who are the ones who are perpetrating those archaic attitudes that women shouldn't be there, they still believe that women shouldn't be playing as well. So the fan culture in those spaces hasn't really changed just because women are playing the game because they're not seen to be at the same status as men who are playing the game by those people. Um, I know a lot of people who do think that women are just as good as the men and I'm definitely one of them and I think they should be treated equally and I see those competitions as equal in terms of the game that they play and the athletes that they are because I love them both and I think they're both amazing. But the people who... I have trouble with um, in these spaces are people who inherently think that women don't belong. So, until that mindset changes, I don't think anything changes. But yeah, I think at the moment we're just at a stage with women's sport that they're in a no win zone. I think then that translates still that that doesn't fix anything for women who are around the game in administration as fans um, and volunteers. So I think, I don't know, I feel like we're just kind of this stalemate right now and it's like the thing that people keep saying to me who are like my feminist friends and um, some feminist friends who are football fans as well, the answer just seems to be like, oh, we just need to wait for a certain generation of men to die out, which just to me is not the answer. But then also I just don't know how to talk to people who have those those mindsets because it's so ingrained and it's so hard to change people's minds, Um, which you would think we're talking about sport, like we're talking about football, like this stuff shouldn't be this hard, but it is because it echoes through every aspect of our existence here, really, and every aspect of society. So these are big issues. They're not small issues, like we were saying before. Like this is really important stuff. And I just don't know what's what's it going to take if something like, Me Too doesn't just instantly change the minds of every man and how they view a woman because that it hasn't and it won't. Um, So what is the answer? I think we can, like what I want to do is just keep having these conversations with people and just keep talking about it because I think it's really important and hopefully that makes a difference. But what rereading this book five years after its publication really told me was, yeah, like things are pretty much the same and it's devastating.
3: Your father told you that you're innocent.